Are elite lawyers miracle workers or are they janitors? That's the question we're asking on the Pro Se Movie Club this week as we talk about Michael Clayton, Tony Gilroy's dark 2007 thriller slash morality tale about the seedy underbelly of corporate litigation. George Clooney is the eponymous Clayton, a so-called fixer at a prestigious Manhattan law firm who's thrust into crisis after his boss and mentor has a mental breakdown while defending a deadly weed killer. As the sinister client attempts to contain the problem, Michael is forced to confront not only an ugly conspiracy, but also his own moral compromises. Let's talk Michael Clayton. There's no play here. There's no angle, there's no champagne room. I'm not a miracle worker, I'm a janitor. The math on this is simple. The smaller the mess, the easier it is for me to clean up. That's the police, isn't it? No. They don't call. Hello, hello. I am Shiva, god of death. (laughs) Uh, As you always introduce yourself. Yeah. That's not right. I am Bill Donahue (laughs) uh, here on the Pro Se Movie Club. I am here with my co-hosts, Amber McKinney. Happy to be here. And Alex Lawson. Uh, I'm here, and I have some of the finest baguettes in all of New York to share (laughs) uh, with my colleagues uh, on this exciting show we're doing. I'll start out by saying that any movie where one of its central core monologues is rooted around billable hours (laughs) is really going to be up our alley. Yeah, it's a movie made exactly for us. But I mean, but in seriousness, it really is. I we've we've watched already a few movies, and we're going to watch a few more, Mm -hmm. and um. I don't think any of them are quite up our alley the way that this one is. It's, yeah. you know, it's protracted civil litigation. It's mm-hmm. the seedy stuff that goes on in a law firm. It's these horribly demoralized attorneys <laughs> who work within the law firm. Um, There's but a it, culture- it even has yeah. um, a reporter calling, trying to like break the news of a big settlement. I mean, yeah. could this mm-hmm. movie be more for us? Right. <laughs> yeah. There's like a, there's like a cultural element to it that like, you know, it's about, uh, like you say, as this sort of sprawling product liability case, but it gets to the it gets to the rot that's at the middle of like, you know, of, of this iteration of big law. There's like lots of there's so much interesting stuff to talk about. It's also about as close to a perfect movie as you can get. It's, it's yeah, this tight. It's tight two hours. It's great performances throughout. It's, uh, you know, you never feel like. It never feels like it's dragging. It never looks feels like you're looking at the runtime. It's um, mm-hmm. it just it just works so well. I want to. I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to be articulate on the podcast. I think we should all strive for that on every podcast. Good we goal. Do. I typically do. Yeah. Um. But I mean, like you say, I mean, I just want to have it stated very clearly in very blunt terms. This movie absolutely rips, and <laughs> I'm just going to try really hard to not have this be the Chris Farley show. Be like, hey. You remember when he had all the baguettes? That was that was awesome. Like I, I have some other things to say, but that is that is basically the core sort of takeaway for me from from Michael Clayton. Yeah, the core takeaway for me is that you know we've done several movies at this point in Movie Club, you know, Legally Blonde, My Cousin Vinny, A Few Good Men. Um, at the core of those movies is that they show you what the law can be on its best day. And how empowering it can be to be an attorney if you (laughs) fight for justice, all of that stuff. And I do love that. But this is not that. This is the opposite. (laughs) It's the core of this movie is being a lawyer is usually just 
being a cog in this big machine Mm -hmm. and you're likely going to get chewed up and spit out and maybe murdered. And it's always in this sheen of professionalism too. It's not like, I mean, the the, the characters in the movie, especially like the, the quote villains, like they're not very arch. They're not like they're they're not Al Pacino, like literally being the devil doing a ham-fisted right. monologue at the camera or anything like that. These are like very sort of steely-eyed professionals who are just kind of like, "Yep, this is what has to happen uh, on the margins of our spreadsheets to make this uh, profitable for everyone." It it's mundane. It's yes. it's like banal. The like yes. the <laughs> evil stuff that goes on in this movie, and I think mm-hmm. that's what it nails so well is that you know the that. It, it is just boardrooms and decisions that people make and memos. That's the real evil in the world. I think that yeah. that's um, this movie is also just continued to age well for that reason. Mm-hmm. That this one came out in what two thousand seven. Right. I think it was right before the financial crisis, yeah, which I thought so was interesting. Very yeah. prescient in many ways. This movie because we've seen lots of big mass tort settlements. We've, n- mm-hmm. I mean, obviously. You know, nobody's been murdered over them, especially not an attorney. That we know about. As far as we know. <laughs> but I think this movie's aged so well because we have seen a more and more cynical time around stuff like this. Yeah. So a very mundane thriller mm-hmm. um, is a really spot on movie. Yeah. I didn't uh, I didn't see this movie when it came out. If you guys will indulge me one like tale of how I, I came to learn about this movie. Sure. I didn't see it when it came out. Uh, it was a crowded movie year, which I do want to talk about in a second. We talked about some of the awards uh, it got nominated for. But uh, some years later, I was probably 2011 or 2012. I was kicking around D.C. with a friend of mine. And this movie comes up. We're just like out on a weekend drinking. And he was like. Oh, you never saw my book, Clayton? Uh, we should we we should get on that. And then at the end of the day, we end up back at his apartment. He's like, just give me 15 minutes. He queues up literally the first 15 minutes of the movie on YouTube, which of course starts with the incredible Tom Wilkinson monologue. Yeah. All the way up through Clooney's car exploding. And I was like, well, we're obviously watching the rest of this movie <laughs> right damn now. Well, that's <laughs> the thing, too. It 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 is very rewatchable. Yes. It makes you want to, when you put it back on. I couldn't believe it. I right. Just, you know the story. You know how it goes. Yeah. But these individual scenes are so dynamic that, mm-hmm. that you want to well, keep watching. I want to talk about stuff like the crowded movie year and the cast and stuff. So I don't want to jump ahead too much. But since we're talking about that first little bit. Oh, man. Um, it is really just such a, so much manic energy right from the jump. Oh, man. And that gets me over a hurdle that a, a lesser movie would have for me where I hate the Four days earlier. it I had the same thought, yes. <laughs> it's it's a conceit that I think is so contrived, it's so overused, and you don't even really notice that they're using the conceit in this movie because it's so well done. You gotta know how to use it right. Yep. And if there was ever an example of that, it's this. Yeah, the yes. idiosyncratic sort of times warping stuff was a big thing, I feel like, in the late 90s through mm-hmm. the 2000s. Um, yes. And with mixed results. And yes. I feel like this movie did it well. Um Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about Amber. You alluded to. Let's talk a little bit about the um, you know some of the some of the people involved. Uh, it was written and directed by Tony Gilroy, um, who was most famous for writing the the Bourne films prior to this. Well, this was yes, his first um, his directorial debut. Yes, um, he was he was like a, he was a screenwriter and like a script doctor in a lot of ways. Right. But guys, more importantly, he also worked on The Devil's Advocate. Yes, he did. So he has screenwriting credit just, on that. I didn't realize it when we planned the order of movie club, but we're in a real cul-de-sac here. Two in a row for Tony G. I also like, I don't know if you know this, Bill. He uh he's he was kind of the Michael Clayton 
of Rogue One, the Star Wars movie. You know right. about that? He was yeah. like, oh, was it Fixer? He was he was the like the the, the, <laughs> the production. This is a digression. The production was like in tatters, and he like was brought in to ba- he basically like like ghost directed the like last yeah. act of the movie, which rules. Well, what um, I like about Tony Gilroy yeah. here, especially since we just talked about Devil's Advocate, the Bourne <laughs> movies and Devil's Advocate, if they had a baby, it would be Michael Clayton's yeah. movie. Like it really <laughs> yeah. is both of those sort of squished together and elevated. Yes. Um, I did want to say, um, Gilroy, th- this is our, this is our second Academy Award winner we've done on the podcast. Of course, Marissa Tomei won Best Supporting Actress. Yep. Uh, for my cousin Vinny. Tilda Swinton takes home the same statue for this. Uh, this is our most decorated movie so far in terms of uh, nominations. Right. That was its only win. But seven noms that year. Gilroy got nominated. Clooney got nominated. I mean, we, we, we will talk about Tom Wilkinson a lot. I mean, we can kind of just wax on Tom Wilkinson here. Um, he was nominated, didn't win that year. Well, but, but he lost to uh, Javier wh- Bardem in No Country for Old Men. So Is nobody was beating Bardem that stacked year. Stacked movie year that yes. year. Yeah, for longtime listeners of Pro Se, they probably, I've probably mentioned this on the air before, but every year with a bunch of my girlfriends, we do AMC Theaters has this um, Oscar movie marathon thing yes. where you can watch them all in the theater mm-hmm. in one crazy day. Mm-hmm. And this year in particular, I remember being like, I'm definitely not going to fall asleep. These movies are all good. And they were, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. a killer year for movies. Yeah, that was loaded. It was part of an interesting stretch for Clooney. Um, yes. He had obviously broken out in the in the 90s with ER and a, and a few movies then. But from he had really settled into he was going to make a lot of uh, sort of small prestigious movies during the the latter half of of the two mm-hmm. thousands. He made Good Night and Good Luck, which I believe he directed. He directed, too. Yeah. Um, uh, The Good German. Uh, he made this Up in the Air, and then The Descendants was um, from '05 to '11. This so, is Syriana Erasure, and I won't stand for <laughs> it. Right, Syriana was in there. Took home the statue out. for Syriana, folks. <laughs> Best supporting actor '05, I believe. Anyway, um, yes, it was uh, quite a run for our man. Which is sort of a bummer because he hasn't done a whole lot in the last few years. Yeah, um, as you mentioned, Tilda Swinton was the real breakout. She mm-hmm. won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was one of the very last roles for uh, the late and great Sidney Pollock. Yes, which I believe Alex uh, has some bars on. Uh, love Sidney Pollock. I have. I'll. We'll. We'll go a little deep when he gets his moment to shine in the okay. movie here. But yes, a fine, a fine film director in his own right. Great actor, and yes, he uh, tragically passed away the um, uh, the year after this movie was released, but he left behind quite a legacy. So what really strikes me about this cast, I mean, we've named some real heavyweights, and it shows the acting in this movie is top-notch, but it also trickles all the way down even to really small parts, because we have people like Merritt Weaver, who plays one of oh, the yeah. um, plaintiffs yes. in the lawsuit, and then Dennis O'Hare is um, one of the potential clients that Michael Clayton has to go deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's really only one scene, but those are some great actors to get in small parts. Direct, director Tom McCarthy did the voiceover of the uh, oh, right? of the guy who calls Michael in the very beginning to tell him to go to the house in huh. Westchester. I, it, it just, it, it just, I could hear the, the voice from, because he's in The Wire. He stars oh, yeah. in season yeah. five of The Wire. And mm-hmm. I'm like, is that Tom McCarthy? <laughs> it was. I mean, even I mean, obviously the he was that was like a notable role on the wire, but that's still very impressive by you that, that you clocked that. On, thank, thank you so much on the phone. Uh, did you have any bars on the uh, uh, on the score? Because that also got nominated, by the way. And I know that this is a this is a hobby of yours. It was great. It was um, it, it it got out of its own way. It was great when they needed it, but there was there's also lots of sort of silence in the movie, which well, has, I I, yeah. I enjoyed. It has that twitchy tension, almost like and with almost like those like clunks that almost sound like the diegetic sound within the movie. Yeah, yeah keeps you like sure. really unnerved. 
the same friend who I talked about before that I watched this with, he will sometimes just text me out of the blue and say like, it's uh, it's the closing score of Michael Clayton kind of day <laughs> when he gets into the taxi yeah. and just drives around. Yeah. All right, so that that's a good place to. Yes. Um, let's move on to our favorite legal scenes. Now, as we say every week, this is not a full recounting of the film. We will skip over some of your favorite stuff. You can go watch it. Um, we are really trying to hit on the scenes that involve lawyers, involve law firms, involve things like that. So. We're going to start off with the very first scene of the movie where um, Michael gets gets this call to in the middle of the night, in the middle of a poker game uh, that he's playing. Yes. To go <laughs> attend to one of the firm's clients who has just, we find, committed a hit and run in mm-hmm. Westchester County, just north of the city. Yes. Um, Michael has been billed to this guy as a miracle worker who will come up and fix everything that, that needs to be fixed. Um, but when he gets there, he quickly dispels that notion for this guy. Mr. Greer, we don't have a lot of time here. Oh, so the circumstances, the the road conditions, none of this holds any interest for you? What interests me is finding the strongest possible criminal attorney that can be here in the next 15 minutes. Well, that sounds ominous. We have some good relationships up here in Westchester. So what are you? What are you? You're not a lawyer? Not the kind you need. What kind is that? A trial lawyer. Somebody who can see this all the way through. That's not what I do. It's uh, it's a great scene. It's like it, it, like 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 we say. There's there, we are in media res here. Throws you into the deep end a little bit, and the movie does a great job. I think of deconstructing like when you hear when you hear about the prototype of like a law firm fixer. It's like this guy's very cool. He's very measured. And Clooney is those things, but then sort of later on in the like you you, you know you think about like Winston Wolfe from Pulp Fiction or something like mm-hmm. that. And Clooney is those things. But one of the great sort of tricks that this movie pulls is sort of a deconstruction of that. Like, I mean, he he is sort of and we're, I, I know we're not getting deep into like this sort of corner of the movie, but he's like deep in debt and he's like his family life is a little bit sort of skewered and all of that. And it's almost like he disappears into his corporate life to like sort of make himself whole a little bit. Yeah. And, like, you see that's on full display here when he's just like kind of giving this guy the straight dope about the kind of services that he's there to provide. Yeah, and in my rewatch of this, I was thinking about how in some ways that deconstruction embodied in this movie trails into a lot of other pop culture following the movie. You get like a parade of troubled fixers. You get like mm-hmm. Olivia Pope from Scandal and yeah. Ray Donovan from the titular Ray Donovan character there. Yeah, um, and they all that. are kind yeah. of this Clooney type where yes. they are fixers. They can get stuff done, but boy, is their personal life a mess and they're doing it for reasons beyond just wanting to do this kind of work. But in the moment, like in the scene we're talking about, I mean, he is he is all of those things that I that I said the movie deconstructs those things. But like as a matter of first impression, um, I mean, he's just he's in the guy's kitchen like the uh, I, I really get a kick out of the guy's wife. Uh, who's yeah. just sort of like kind of like staring into space. Clearly, this guy just mur- like may have murdered somebody on the highway. And like she's just like kind of is you know, yeah. sort of like meditating there a little bit. It's uh, it's um, uh, really throws you in the deep end. It's a great way to introduce us to this character. So after he uh, after he leaves this this interaction with this guy, we see Michael pause in this field and get out of his car and behind him, his car explodes. And that is, you know, this, this, one of the, one of the big moments in the movie 
We then flash back four days, four days before to what, what will be the central events of the film. Michael mm-hmm. is dealing with the failure of his restaurant. He has taken yes. money from what appear to be loan sharks to get it off the ground. He now owes them a lot of money because the restaurant has failed. Um, and we see a, we spend a bit of time seeing what Michael does a little more that he makes these he makes lots yeah. of calls saying he's dealing with uh, INS, which I believe was the former name of ICE, ICE right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and dealing with people who have been arrested, really sort of the the uglier side of the stuff that has to be dealt with for the firm's clients. Um, but then that gets us to our next big scene, which is when we meet. Karen Crowder, who is the general counsel for an agrochemical company called U North, who is the client of um, of Clooney's firm, and they have been involved in this protracted litigation over allegations that their company has killed many people with their weed killer. Um, we meet Karen in a very interesting way, and she is yeah. um, she's preparing for an interview, uh, and with what seem like fairly softball questions about what yeah. she does and. <laughs> How she got there. Um, Amber, I know you had mentioned this scene in particular to me before we started recording. I could talk about Tilda Swinton in this movie for hours and hours. She's just so good. But I think for anybody who hasn't seen this movie or hasn't seen it for a while, just, you know, open up Wikipedia right now, type in the word anxiety, and her performance (laughs) just pops right up. I mean, she in this movie is nothing but true anxious energy. And what I like about it is you don't often see general counsel depicted in this fulsome way in a movie. Yeah. You usually, if there's any general counsels that pop up in movies, it's usually like just at a settlement table or in a boardroom with like executives. You don't see the behind the scenes of them like preparing for an interview. And so it's just a really interesting slice of life about how high pressure that job can be Mm -hmm. and how this particular woman is really crumbling yeah. In that role. Well, and there is such a casual way that the movie presents like the life of a high powered corporate lawyer where um, you made a good point about the I, I couldn't really track exactly who is like that. Like the person who's interviewing her, that could be like an internal firm thing. Maybe I think I, it was supposed to be. Okay. That's how I read it. Yeah. I'm honestly not sure. But like the like you see her like rehearsing her answers for this interview and she's like giving the platitudes that like, I mean. We we have all heard in our in our in our reporting lives about work life balance and how important that is. And like, meanwhile, this character is days away from ordering the murder of outside counsel. What I love about her balance practice part, yeah. is that she tries a couple ways to explain her life oh. being okay. Yeah, so, so and creepy. All of it sounds them robotic. Are, yeah, well, I mean, the first one she just sort of stumbles over, like, um, you shift around your balance, you try to figure it out, and then she, she just internally is like, well, that's no, not going to work. That, Nobody's going to buy that. No. So I think there's something really interesting there about how not only is she totally tilted toward toward her job as her identity. Mm -hmm. But also, she can't even convince herself or others about why that should be okay. Balance? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's that's something that you search for your whole life, isn't it? Um, It's a shifting balance, really. It's, uh, you know, you, uh, you try to... When you really are enjoying what it is you do, who needs balance? There's your balance. There's your balance. When you're really enjoying what it is you do, there's your balance. And she's set up as this, um, you know, this this villain in the movie. But I, I, I struggled not to empathize with her because in the same way that you do with Michael and with Arthur, who we'll talk about in a minute, 
that they are yeah. they're being chewed up by their profession 100%. and you know she my sense was that she is so desperately desperately trying to fill the role of this guy who has been her mentor mm-hmm. and um obviously she lacks any morality whatsoever because she then goes on to do what she does but um yes. but i thought it was sort of in line with the theme of what the profession or perhaps what you know the high end corporate end of the profession can do to individual people yes definitely um so uh our next big scene is um we meet arthur arthur edens who is a Rainmaking partner and a litigator and Michael's seemingly mentor and perhaps surrogate father figure in some way. Um, he has been repping for the firm, uh, repping you North for more than six years on this big products liability case. Um, yep. um, the inciting event of the film is that Arthur has this mental breakdown yes. and he strips down during a deposition and, tries to apologize or you don't really get a sense because he is, we are, we quickly find out he is a manic depressive and he's off his drugs. And, um, but he tries to sort of apologize to one of the plaintiffs in this case during this deposition, it's all on film <laughs> and the movie sets it up as everyone is finding out about this disastrous deposition. Mm-hmm. And I think any of us would, would know from, you know, from the outside, from our law 360 perspective, if this happened, it would be this enormous deal. If, we if would a, talk about it on Pro Se. Right. I, feel, oh, for sure. I feel confident saying that if this happened in real life. So Michael travels to Milwaukee <laughs> yes. to deal with this, as mm. does Karen. And that's where the two of them meet for the first time. But Michael travels to Milwaukee to deal with it. And he finds Arthur in this jail cell mm-hmm. where Arthur tries to sort of tell him about why, you know, in not always coherent terms, tries <laughs> yeah. to tell him about why he is struggling so much and what his breakthrough seemingly has been. They killed the Michael. Those small farms, the family farms. Did you, did you, did you meet uh, Anna? No. Oh, you gotta see her, you gotta talk to her. She's, she, she's a miracle, Michael. She's God's perfect little creature. And for $50 million in fees, I've spent 12% of my life destroying perfect Anna and her dead parents and her dying brother. When was the last time you took one of these? No, 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 no. I'm not losing this. Everything is not finally significant. The world is a beautiful and radiant place. I'm not trading that for this. If it's real, the pill won't kill it. I have blood on my hands. You are the senior litigating partner of one of the largest, most respected law firms in the world. You are a legend. I'm an accomplice. You're a manic depressive. I am Shiva, the god of death. Yeah, I don't um it's a it's a crucially important scene. I mean, I think this is where we can play some jazz on Tom Wilkinson because I mean, I don't even I don't have the superlatives in my like it is electric what goes on in this movie from Tom Wilkinson. He's such an interesting character and the portrayal is so good because it does straddle this line between someone that you could actively believe is a essentially a savant of a lawyer. Like yeah. he's so good, but struggles with these mental health issues in a really believable way. And also the guilt of working on a case that he's come to believe is very, very evil. Yeah. So it's a lot of emotion that has to be in one characterization. And he does a great job with it. But what I really love about the scene is that he does run down how all-consuming one big giant case can be mm-hmm. for a corporate attorney. Yes. And he has a lot of lines about like how many billable hours. I think he says something like um that they were celebrating hitting 30,000 oh, yeah. billable hours on this one case and then he calculates out like how much of his life he spent on it. It's just um 
you know, it sounds hyperbolic for a movie, but that's real life for a lot of high-powered attorneys, that they get on one very important, very lucrative case. And if you're the lead guy on that, that's all you do. And you might do it for years. Which would be soul crushing even if the case was a good case but yes. this appears to be what what is sort of underlying this is that Arthur has discovered that you know it's not an ambiguous situation anymore about whether this company maybe did something wrong he has found documentary evidence to show that this company has uh you know knew that their that their chemical was hurting people and they sold it anyway yeah i mean the what the, the way he gets the way he describes the churn of the legal process is like Pretty demoralizing. It, 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 it reminded me. Um, it reminded me a lot of the Charles Dickens book Bleak House, which is about <laughs> yeah. a generational um, fight over. A, it's someone dies and it's like an estate, and it like the book is about like how it literally swallows up. Like kids grow up, become lawyers, work on this case, and die, and yeah. like it's not been resolved. It's like decades long. This is like a more sort of condensed uh, timeline, but this is the, like you can hear it in the way he delivers the lines. It's like. It's weighing on him with like with every breath he takes, and like it's 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 fascinating to watch it unfold. So when my first job out of law school, I was actually a contract attorney, and got brought in to work on the settlement of a big, sprawling case in telecom mm -hmm. litigation. And I'll spare you guys the details of telecom litigation. I don't think for you these should. Purposes. I would love to. Let's know. do about ten minutes on <laughs> especially in the context of this movie. What do you mean the details? <laughs> so the thing that sort of struck me about that time in my life compared to Michael Clayton, obviously none of the evilness or any of those shenanigans, but I definitely met a lot of attorneys who this was yeah. either something they exclusively worked on or a large proportion of what they worked on. And by the time I came in, it was at the end, it was during massive settlement calculations, that kind of stuff. But they'd worked on it for years. Mm -hmm. So when you heard these attorneys talk about that, and we would talk about like pushing forward next batches of settlements and that kind of stuff. You could hear the sparkle in their voice at the idea that we were very near the end of it. <laughs> right. And I think that that's pretty common even if you are not facing a big giant corporation that's done something terrible that you no longer believe in. Um, even if you really believe in a case, it's just tough to work on one thing exclusively for a long time. And I think the scene really lays out as well that that what was it all for? You know, there's the anecdote about that you mentioned the 30,000 billable hours and they're going to go celebrate. And it's this horrific anecdote about oh, yeah. the whorehouse. And, and <laughs> it's, it's so not only have I spent all these years doing it, not only have I destroyed people's lives doing it, but what did I do it for? I did it for money so that I could then go and spend it in this horrible way. It's, yeah. it really, it really soaks you with, with this feeling of, of regret and why have I done this with my life? Not shocking that the guy who wrote The Devil's Advocate also <laughs> views just the more mundane version of the law to also be soul crushing. I'm sad he didn't make more legal movies, if I'm being honest, as, as we Truly. look at it. Uh, one little bit of like movie making uh, that really impressed me in this part of the, the movie is that when we see the actual deposition in question, uh, that is not a scene where um, we are given like a flashback or we are taken inside the room. We're literally shown the tape of it and watching other people watch the tape. It really like gives it this like clinical, like it's just a piece of evidence that we're looking yeah. at. And like the, the camera like jars to the right and like yeah. you see him taken off the shirt. And it's like, it's very unsettling to watch that rather than like if they staged it in like a more dramatic way and bring us like, you know, inside his mind as he's like grappling with it. It's just like, what does this mean for the case? And it's uh, bad. 
I'm but. so glad that you brought that up because I think that's a great way to segue to our next big legal scene, which is Arthur, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, has yeah. discovered this memo and um, that that proves that you North knew that its weed killer was deadly. And mm-hmm. he is – there's a scene where he decides that he's going to read this over the phone into his own voicemail. And yeah. very similar to what you just said about the tape. There's a way that a less creative film could have done this with voiceover or yes. with more still shots on the on the document itself. But to have someone read it and to have someone like Tom Wilkinson in this movie read it the way that he did, emphasizing certain things and really going into it. And he has his little asides about, let me tell you something, as a lawyer, you shouldn't put these two words <laughs> in a sentence. It's really, really good because it gets – into the record of the movie, it gets this this document in there. Yes. Um, but it does it in a creative way that feels like it's part of uh, that world. Here we are, all together. Is everyone listening? Because this is the moment you've been waiting for, a very special piece of paper. So let's have a big, paranoid, malignant round of applause for United Northfield Cultitate Internal Research Memorandum Number 229, June 19th, 1991. Conclusion. The unanticipated market growth for Cultitate by small farms in colder climates demands immediate cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> Would you guys like a little bit of legal advice? Never let a scientist use the words unanticipated and immediate in the same sentence. Okay, okay. In-house field studies have indicated that small short-season farms dependent on well water for human consumption are at risk for toxic particulate concentrations at levels significant enough to cause serious human tissue damage. Well, this is a long way of saying that you don't even have to leave your house to be killed by our product. We'll pipe it into your kitchen sink. Yeah, so I did some reflection on, you know, there's... There's other movies out there that have toxic torts or something like this at the center of them. Mm-hmm. But not many have a smoking gun memo. I mean, that's yeah. pretty unusual. And I was thinking, oh, well, is that just like a Perry Mason style, like easy conceit to like, oh, here's a memo that lays out how evil this company is. Um, but I found this interview that George Clooney had done, and he said that this was based in part on the investigations after the Ford Pinto Yeah. Um, problems Um. so if anybody doesn't remember that ford pentos were the kind of cars that if they got hit a certain way from behind they basically would explode and people died because of it ford eventually had to recall it and during the course of subsequent investigations and lawsuits it was revealed that there was a memo that estimated the cost of fuel system modifications versus how much money doing a recall um, well, there, there's the cost of modifying them and the recall yes. versus the actual value of the number of people that died. Yeah. So it's Oof. pretty stark. Um, I think it was something like design changes were estimated to save X number of deaths. Right. Um, but the benefit to society of that is one number yeah. um, based on some government calculations, actually. Uh, but that's the kind of thing where it seems convenient for a movie, but there are companies that have memos like this. This yeah. is not outside the realm of possibility. Well, and people say, I mean, my takeaway from the scene is people say discovery is boring. Uh, oh, we're in discovery. We talk about it on Pro Se. It's like, yeah, they're in discovery now. We'll, we'll, we'll check we'll, back in in a year. We'll get back in when they get to something interesting. 
Uh, very interesting. When it gets interesting is when yeah. the defense attorney uh, starts actively making the plaintiff's case into his own voicemail, and that's actually gets to another. You know, whenever you talk to whenever you talk to serious trial lawyers about trial prep, part of it is like we anticipate what the opposing side is going to argue, and we argue against that in mocking or whatever we're doing. This, of course, takes it to an absurd level where he has had this crisis of faith or whatever, and he's now like actively doing that into his own voicemail. Um, it's like it's insane stuff. And we should say we didn't quite mention it, but you know, the the, the what is happening here is that 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 he is essentially attempting to give this information yes. to he's uh, blowing either the whistle. exactly either blow the whistle or give it to the plaintiff's attorneys. We later find out that he has printed many boxes of this memo to give out to people. Um, one final interesting sort of screenwriting thing here is that by they they tie Karen back in directly because her boss that she is obsessed with with impressing yeah his name is on the bottom of this memorandum so yeah. they really they tie it into her whole desperate ambition sort of angle of her character uh this is also this is not really material to the movie or the story but I just wanted this is the only place to really say uh, Arthur has a has a sick apartment. It's true. Downtown loft. It does seem nice. Although it's kind of right. It's kind of in that dead zone over by the West Side Highway where there's not a whole <laughs> lot going on over there. Yeah, but he can't, but 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 I mean, that's that's where I want to be. I don't want people around me. But at anyway. one point they say <laughs> it uh, sounds like he doesn't want it either. At one point yeah. they say Arthur living downtown was a terrible oh, idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't true. quite know what that means. But, yeah. um, well, we know what he gets into. Right? <laughs> yes. So we move on to there, and we've sort of glossed over it, but Karen has learned about this, and she has had people tracking Arthur, and eventually she takes the the momentous step of uh, telling these, pe- these people to kill Arthur. Um, Arthur is killed by these hitmen. It's a, it's a tough scene to watch because yeah. it's so um, emotionless, and yeah. the, the way that two people can – kill someone like that and they you know they're very robotic about it they hold down while he's dying um one guy's just like we're good yeah um (laughs) but they make it look like a suicide they make it look like he had been and he had had been having this this manic episode so it sort of checks out heavily medicated right and people initially believe it that the police tell michael that the reason that it's pretty clear that it was suicide um there's an interesting scene where um everyone is grieving arthur's death and um, Michael is with one of the name partners at the firm, Marty Bach, per- portrayed by Sidney Pollack. We have not mentioned him yet. Um, they are sitting together at the bar, and at one point, you know, they're grieving and they're saying, I can't believe it. But at one point, Marty looks at Michael and he says, We kind of dodged a bullet, didn't we? <laughs> and, you know, he couches it as, We shouldn't say this, but it's just part of this overall message of, it's kind of good, you know? It's, it, it's the cogs in a wheel thing I was right. talking about before, that everybody's just a replaceable cog, and if you get bent out of shape, they're going to put in a right. shiny new one. Yeah, like the movie doesn't give you any indication to think that Marty is in on the Arthur no. hit. But you, but like you say, you also get the idea that he wouldn't really be so broken up about it if he knew about it, right? <laughs> like in an active way. And at this point, the movie enters sort of its final act, where yeah. Michael begins to unravel this secret that... Perhaps Arthur did not kill himself, that perhaps he was killed because of what he knew. Um, you know, there's this night of sleuthing where yeah. uh, he's arrested getting into Arthur's apartment. He finds all these clues that that sort of indicate that Arthur, you know, was was killed to keep him silent. So that sets us up to go back to the law firm where everyone, it's sort of all hands on deck. 
the um, we haven't mentioned it, but there is throughout this movie, there is the current of a merger is happening, oh, which yeah. is another just big law 360 storyline oh, for I, us. Big time. Um, <laughs> but there's a firm merger and the, and uh, Michael discovers that um, uh, that you North has decided to settle this big class action. So everyone's mm. there working on it. And Michael comes to Marty Bach, who, again, I think we've given a little bit short shrift to, but he is also portrayed as sort of, you know, a father figure, a mentor to Michael. I think a big interesting part of this movie is sort of Michael, you know, maybe like a class angle that Michael is this outsider in this sort of blue blood world. He's a tri-state guy. He's portrayed to be maybe Irish, you know, Catholic. His dad was a cop. I'm pretty sure he is a graduate of Fordham Law. Fordham Law, that's right. But um, (laughs) uh, so I think, you know... um, I, I, that's a long way of saying that I think Marty and I think Arthur are sort of these aspirational, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, upper tier figures for Michael. So he sort of, you know, he takes what they say very seriously when they, and I think that that maybe contributes to to <laughs> to Michael's, you know, ethical lapses or ethical yeah. compromises. Well, Karen has this with Don too, right? To exactly. Say, yeah. Um, but Michael goes to Marty to the Sidney Pollock character to tell him what he's found about about Arthur and say, maybe Arthur, you know, maybe something weird is going on here. What if Arthur was onto something? What do you mean? Onto what? You North, what if he wasn't crazy? What if he was right? Right about what? That we're on the wrong side? Wrong side, wrong way, everything, all of it. This is news. This case reeked from day one. 15 years in, I gotta tell you how we pay the rent. But what would they do? What would they do if he went public? What would they do? Are you fucking soft? They're doing it. We don't straighten the settlement out in the next 24 hours. They're going to withhold $9 million in fees. Then they're going to pull out the video of Arthur doing his flash dance in Milwaukee. They're going to sue us for legal malpractice. Except there won't be anything for them to win because by then the merger with London will be dead. We'll be selling off the goddamn furniture. That's 80. We're calling it a bonus. You got a three-year contract at your current numbers. That's assuming this all works out. You doing this now? Look, I agreed to this, okay, but there's rules now. You want the contract, you're signing a confidentiality agreement, it's going to be bulletproof, and it's going to be retroactive. Because Marty's too nice to say it. But with everything you know about this place and the clients here and the people who work here, it makes it a little weird when you come in and ask for 80 grand. It's it's amazing work from Sidney Pollack, who I mentioned at the top was... A, was um, a fine film director in his own right. He directed a bunch of Westerns in the 70s. Jeremiah Johnson, Three Days of the Condor, amazing uh, Robert Redford movie. Won himself an Oscar uh, for directing Out of Africa. Um, also, no stranger to playing uh, corrupt lawyers. Have you guys ever seen Changing Lanes? The Ben oh, yeah. Affleck, Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> sure. He's great in that movie. Uh, I did see it. I saw it in the theaters, actually. A similar uh, lawyer with uh, very flexible uh, principles. But... Um, we've, we've, we've alluded to it a couple times. I mean, he has a way of like delivering the unsavory truth to Michael in a way that's just like, yeah, I mean, what do you think's going on here? And it's just like, it's so plaintive. It's so blunt. And it's like, it's, it's, it's extremely disturbing, like in, in a very, just sort of like, you know, mundane way. It reminds me of the, well, that's what the money is for yeah, right. scene from Mad Men. Where you're not even like, that worked up about it. Right. No, it's like, <laughs> it's like we've sort of made this compromise yes. that we are representing bad people here and they're paying us a lot of money. And if we don't keep representing them and we keep going down this path, we will be sued into oblivion. Yes. Um, they, this, all, this also is a nice little callback to the scene earlier when Michael, you know, comes hat in hand and is like, you know, why would you let me be on the litigation team and all of that stuff? This is sort of a, 
well, you're still not on the litigation team, but we're going to make you whole here. He's going to sort of give him, give, him a, give him a parachute out of his debt. So from there, we return to essentially the, the events of the first scene of the movie. Only yeah. this time, we now see it from the perspective of the two hitmen who killed Arthur are now tracking Michael because he has uncovered what Arthur uncovered. Mm-hmm. And they place a car bomb in his car when he's during, when he's in the card game. And uh, he leaves the house. We see some of we see sort of a, a fast retelling of the earlier events. Yeah. Eventually, the bomb goes off. He throws all of his things into the car so <laughs> that he fakes his own death, and he runs off. And um, that sets us up for this climactic final scene with Karen Crowder at uh, the. You know, she is. Um, She's pitching her board on why they should accept this settlement. New settlement um, offer, yeah. And uh, she, you know, she's we we know that she's really doing it because there's this damning memo out there, and right. they need to yes. put this case behind them. Um, and seemingly back from the dead, Michael is there. This memorandum, even if it's authentic, which I doubt, I highly. Doubt. I know what you did to Arthur. It's protected. It belongs to you, North. I know you killed him. It's a cut and dry case of attorney-client privilege. See, now that's just not the way to go here, Karen. For such a smart person, you really are lost, aren't you? This conversation is over. I'm not the guy that you kill. I'm the guy that you buy. Are you so fucking blind you don't even see what I am? I'm the easiest part of your whole goddamn problem and you're gonna kill me? Don't you know who I am? I'm a fixer. I'm a bag man. I do everything from shoplifting housewives to bent congressmen and you're gonna kill me? What do you need, Karen? Lay it on me. You want a carry permit? You want a heads up on an insider trading subpoena? I sold out Arthur for 80 grand and a three-year contract and you're gonna kill me? What do you want? What do I want? I want more. I want out. And with this, I want everything. It's an amazing scene. It's, it's lower temperature than you remember it in your mind, which I think is always, like in A Few Good Men, that scene is what you remember yes, as the scene. Yes, Here, I remember it being this enormous scene, and it's very sort of low-key, I think, at times. Yeah, well, the whole movie's kind of like that, right? Like, I mean, there's there are, the stakes are extremely high. People are, you know, already 500 people have died that resulted in this case being filed. People have been murdered, but like the way people discuss this stuff is very low key. And Tilda Swinton and George Clooney do an amazing job of like letting the letting the pot come to a slow boil. Well, one of the things I also liked about the scene is that um, it, the setting is not some mahogany boardroom with a bunch of yeah, uh, the a bunch of people. They are <laughs> they're at the uh, the scene of. Uh, Pro Se's first live show. It's oh, is that right? That Hilton, oh. you guys. It's in Midtown. Oh, I forgot Love about it. Uh, they are um, in a larger auditorium than we were able to secure. However, what I like. I think what you're telling us is we should poison 500 people. <laughs> We'd get a <laughs> lot more get attention. Good, yeah. Uh, but I do like that they said it there because it it does follow through this theme we've been talking about, about like how the most evil things can happen in the most sort of regular places. Mm-hmm. And he does what you see in sometimes in climactic scenes in trial movies on the stand where he plays into his own persona that he is obviously so self-conscious of and that other people are constantly telling him, you're not a lawyer, you're a fixer, you're a bag man, you're this stuff. And he knows that Tilda thinks that about him, that, sorry, that Karen knows, yeah. thinks that about him and he uses it to his advantage here. Yeah. It's, it's a brilliant sort of cashing in of the, of the, 
you know, what we've built up throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Well, Arthur calls him a bag man earlier in the in the scene with the baguettes. And I like that he that he comes back and he and he puts it back in her. Face and as too. the viewer, we don't know if he's actually until yeah. it flips. Oh, yeah. We don't know whether or not he is actually saying just pay me and I'll go away. We don't know that. I really like the flip, too, for the reason that you were describing, Bill, that um, finally we do know, like, yeah, Michael Clayton would have been a good litigator. He could have just been doing that. He's good at it. Not such a great fixer, as it turns out, because uh, he blows the whistle on absolutely everybody. <laughs> yeah, you got to uh, think uh, <laughs> at least for at least for the firm. You got to think there's some blowback for the firm. Uh, we could we could do some some uh, fanfic sequels here. I know. But, uh, I know. Um, uh, last last little bit here. Um, I know I've been. I think I've spent a lot of time like going over people's line readings because this, this movie is full of amazing performances. But one thing that absolutely break like well, it doesn't break my heart because she's not. Uh, a person to to sympathize with um but once he once he kind of all but tells her that he's wearing a wire that it's all you know it's all it's all a ruse or whatever you hear tilda swinton like her voice shakes a little bit and she goes you don't want the money you don't want the money oh my god it kills (laughs) me i get chills just thinking about it she's like she's just clinging to anything she can it's all falling apart and she of course literally collapses as he walks off the long take so that basically gets us to the end of the movie, which is he walks out of this hotel and it's a it's a wonderful end to a movie. He gets into a car and gives the guy 50 bucks and says, just drive. drive. And it just sits on his face silently with the sound of the city in the background. And, you know, you have seen this guy go through so much to sit there silently with him for like two minutes. You watch the credits roll and you just stay on his face yeah. and – it, what a creative choice, and I I I love the ending to this movie. Yeah, I mean it's such a it's like an exhale, you know. I mean everything's been going at this fever pitch for such a long time, and it's like you know what? Let's just take a ride around the city here. For I a also sec. like it in the arty way that it gives the viewer the opportunity to be like, let me read all of Clooney's facial expressions and decide oh, yeah. what I think this means. So well, it's yeah. good for that, and it's good for lots of bar debates. At the very end, if you stay to the very very end, he does smile very briefly at the end, yeah. which a lot of people have read into. Um, All right, so let's move on to our next big segment, which is what the movie got right and wrong about the legal profession, about the legal industry. Um, I'm pretty excited about this, Bill. I have a lot to talk about in this segment. Well, and I think this is different than a lot of our other episodes, and we should say that right out out front in in the sense that there isn't courtroom procedure to talk about much. There isn't uh, all the things that they typically get wrong with that. And I also think that in terms of the stuff they do show, the firm life, the firm dynamics, they got so much right that there isn't there isn't that much to yeah. to nitpick about. Yeah, I have sort of big buckets I want to talk about. Sort of Go for it. Two big things that are I think are wrong, and then uh, uh, maybe two or three big things that are right. Um, so maybe we start with the ones that are wrong first because they are just sort of undergird the whole movie. Sure. Yeah. Hey guys, fixers at white shoe law firms. I don't think that's a thing. Well, I mean, they kind of exist off the books. Isn't that kind of the this is this is kind of what Bill was saying, like this movie specifically exists in a in an unethical corner of the of the legal universe. So it's almost weird to be like, oh, you know, this stuff isn't really allowed. uh, I think they're smart enough to contract out. I think they've got a team of Mossad agents in like a basement. (laughs) We we have heard tale of that. So you're not wrong there. Passaic who are just going to like drive out. And I think that it's more like the hitmen are the fixers yes, for yes, firms. That's it's true. not like a not guy in the corner. To be office. clear, are, are murdering people. But. Well, but that, 
that's the thing about this movie. It it makes it the guy in the corner office that everybody's like, oh, what's he do? Trust in estates. Yeah. Like, uh, and yeah. he's actually the firm fixer. It just it's like a weird dynamic. So well, just wanted had, to get that on the record. Well, this movie had quite a glow up when when Michael Cohen was in the news and oh, stuff because sure. he billed himself as Donald Trump's fixer. Yeah, he and said they even that have similar right out loud. Yeah, yeah, they even have similar names, of course. And he became something of a like a like a like a bumbling figure, which so, is kind of a antithetical to what goes on here my but. second big bucket of wrong um and not to pick apart this movie because i don't really care about yeah. any of this this movie is great um if you're a general counsel why would you go to the trouble to kill one lawyer and try to kill another when there are so many easier ways to make these problems disappear yeah, I mean, again, these are not ethical actors uh, who are doing. But even the uh, yeah. ethics aside, oh, you're saying I just she would feel be more, like she would be smarter. Okay, about you're it. a general yeah. counsel; you have the control. Demand the firm get Michael under control and get well, um, well, Arthur offered, under she, control. She did that with Arthur, and you know he is not a he was not a rational actor at yeah. the time. I think that's the. You know, I think she demanded that the firm get him under control, and they didn't know where he was for a long period of time. Then he's doing all these things, and then he disappears. Do you know how many, especially like horror movies, which I watch a lot about? Do you know how many of those traffic in the idea of like, well, let's just discredit the crazy person? Like that's that's also an opportunity here to just sort of blame Arthur. So he's got reams of documents, though. I mean, because he's he also has uh, you know prove the prove the (laughs) veracity of those documents. This seems like what a lawyer would think. That's true. That's true. So for me. I tr- again, I truly don't care. This movie's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just seems like fire the firm, demand the firm do something different. Um, go on a PR campaign with the backing of your giant corporation to discredit the firm and the lawyers. Yeah, yeah that's a true. murder seems like a a thing you wouldn't even consider. Well, w- one would hope that most general counsel would not consider <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, turning <laughs> to <Good> call. <laughs> so, what else you got? So maybe we make the turn now to things I think are really right yeah. and real. The first one I wanted to talk about is. Mental health issues among lawyers. I mean, this movie takes it to an extreme, of course. But this is something we've talked about on Pro Se before um, with people who are working to destigmatize in big law the idea of bringing up your mental mental health concerns that are pretty rampant in the legal Mm -hmm. industry because of the pressure. Yeah. And this one is just sort of you see, you know, Marty at the firm even saying like, yeah, I mean, we got to get him under control. What a mess. Instead of the empathetic, like, let's help him. And then we've even talked about, like, we would report on an attorney that had some crazy outburst in a deposition. Yes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that approach. But it just shows why people that do struggle in big law keep it tamped down. Because Mm -hmm. if you break over that line, you become this ostracized Arthur figure. Well, and they give Marty and everyone else enough of a plausible – reason to want to make this go away and not to help him that it feels it feels amoral as opposed to immoral that you know we're going to get sued into the ground for malpractice because you are too involved to be doing what you're doing it's not a question of you know that yes they should be helping him but there is this other thing looming over all of them with what he's doing and there also just doesn't seem to be an outlet for Mm -hmm. arthur like he discovers the memo Who's he supposed to take that to? Like, no one else in the firm is going to be like, oh, yeah, let's drop that client. Right. Um, There's just nowhere for him to go. And it's a firm and a company and an industry that seems like it will just take, take, take until Mm -hmm. there's nothing left. Um, I had a couple notes, too, in terms of uh, things. I have a mostly clean sort of slate here on what they uh, on what they got right. Um, But the uh, um, 
it's it's very quick, but during the uh, during Arthur's meltdown and the deposition, you can hear someone from plaintiff's counsel as they try to turn off the camera. You can hear someone say, no, no, I want this on the record. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Which would really a good. million percent happen sure. if that started to happen sure. in the deposition room. Because they are, of course, trying to be like, okay, stop. We're off the record now. I don't know what's going on with this guy. Right. And the plaintiff's counsel like, no, 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 <laughs> no. If he's got something to get off his chest, I think we'd all like to hear it. Yeah. I thought that was, it was, it's both sort of darkly funny yeah. and accurate to how something like that would go if something that dramatic happened. The other thing too, um, similar part of the movie that I thought that I loved and thought was very accurate was the the beleaguered associates in the hotel. Oh room. my god, Love yes. That. They are Love credited that. in the movie as like third year and fourth year. Oh, they don't even oh, get names, yeah. which yeah. I thought was a that real meta right. a real meta commentary. Um you know, they're the troops on the ground. They have had to they are snowed into a tiny yes. hotel room <laughs> yep. working all night eating Chinese food in Milwaukee. And they have just dealt with this insane partner going crazy during his deposition. Yeah. And now another partner shows up and starts screaming at them about, you you better not talk to anyone about this. (laughs) And where's the briefcase? And yeah, Right. sure. Who has his briefcase? Where's the document? That also ties into another thing I think that this movie brilliantly gets correct. And that's just lawyer burnout in general. Because Arthur is clearly burnt out. Michael Clayton himself is clearly burnt out. And so is Karen. I mean, even on the flip side of this, I know she's an evil character in this movie, but everybody's squeezed by the system. And you see that in really subtle ways in this movie, not just when they're on the job. Like even when Michael's dropping his son off at school and they're in the car and they're talking, you can he's thinking about work. Right. He's, he's distracted. Not, yeah, he's not yep. really in his personal life. So you know, his family, Michael's family has to beg him to stay an hour for his mm-hmm. dad's birthday. I think you have all these little moments that make it really clear that people that devote too heavily into this system, this job, are are quickly chewed up by it. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of what I was getting at, at the maybe maybe not so articulately when I was saying like the, the things this movie is – the, the observations it makes about the law are like more cultural, right? Like the, the, the sort of endemic issues that like that like wear down the yeah. people. And that's obviously very we've seen that sort of play out in less dramatic fashion, but it does it does I it guess does yeah, materialize that, that way. I think that's right, Alex. And I think sort of my last point on things, I think it gets really right. Um Karen to me is the hero character in some ways in my mind of this movie in terms of what the movie has to say. You're about really on the a role. roll here with the uh, uh, defending the evil people. Yes. I, can't, I don't know, guys. <laughs> I just feel like it, it does such a good way of showing why. You know, she's not one dimensional. Yes. It shows why this happens to her and why she goes so dark. Um, to me, the core of it is not just that she has a high pressure job or that she's trying to impress her mentor. It's the kind of person that goes to law school and goes after those high-pressure jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it says something about just fundamentally there is a certain personality type that might believe what Karen says early in the movie of like, well, when you do what you love, that's the balance right there. Right, yeah. Like there's yeah. part of her that does believe that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's fictional. I think that's pretty accurate to some lawyers out there and – maybe some former lawyers in this room. So I am just saying I have some sympathy for Karen. Um, that's very well said. I think it's a nice place to uh, to leave that segment behind and move on to our, our big takes on the movie. Um, I was watching this and I was thinking about it in relative to the other movies that we have done on this show and are going to do. 
Um, because this movie doesn't get lumped in with like the legal cinema Mount Rushmore, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it's it it doesn't and, and it doesn't have the we mentioned it earlier on. There's in the no show. court scenes. There's no court scenes. There's no cathartic moment on the witness stand. There's no yeah. courthouse steps. Um, yeah. It, it doesn't have a good message about the no. legal system, no. really. I mean, he ultimately <laughs> is redeemed, but I don't think there's any redemption for the but profession cost, or for, right. Know. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, but I think it deserves to be considered in that realm for all the things that we just mentioned, that it is this incredibly accurate portrayal, I think, of, for some people, the life inside a white shoe law firm that... Um, you know, it is brilliant people defending really, really ugly stuff and compromising their sense of right and wrong over and over and over again. And Amber, as you said, even on even on Karen's side, that they are, she, you know, she and Michael really mirror each other in a lot of ways. Yeah. They just respond differently to the stimuli. Yeah. She is she is completely she lacks any sort of moral, you know, compass at all. So she turns from this pressure into this monster and he ultimately does the right thing. But, um, you know, that story of what the, these really high pressure legal jobs do to people, how these firms can, I forget which one of you said, but can consume or chew up their people yeah. rather than just employ them. Um, that I think is so true to what we hear from a lot of attorneys about work at these firms. So, um, you know, it doesn't have the courtroom scene, but I think it is yeah. a, an important legal movie. Well, what the, one thing that I mean, especially, you know, viewing this in 2021 is like um, talking about the mental health side, which we've alluded to a couple of times. I would encourage you, though, to even think about the way this movie positions the mental illness for lawyers. Like, obviously, you know, Arthur is a diagnosed man depressive. Yeah. He's on medicine for it. So I'm not suggesting that he doesn't have a mental illness. Clearly, he does. But the way the firm interprets this is the only reason that they that they are even threatened by it is because his illness, you know, sort of in quotes, has manifested in him deciding to do the morally correct thing. <laughs> right. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, okay, he's having these breakdowns. He's stripping down in a deposition. This is inappropriate, right? But the only reason that it's on their radar at all is because all he has done is decide to do something that is morally correct, right? To to unmask the company that he's defending as like a bad faith actor, right? An actual wanton murderer of its of its customers or whatever. And so, I mean, it paints a I, I don't think it's a stretch to say it paints an extremely dark picture of big law culture. And I guess if you were an optimist, you would say, well, you know. Michael is using the law to hold these people to account, right? But, you know, take a look, take take some stock of, like, what it has done to him. We literally spend the movie, you know, the, the end of the movie, like, watching him just sort of, like, gaze into the middle distance. Yeah. Yes, I've done the right thing. Maybe these people will be held to account, though they are high-powered lawyers themselves. Who knows who might right. cop a plea or do whatever. Um, but it's very dark, very unnerving, uh, and very compelling. I, 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 I love this movie. I love it too. I think my final thoughts are very similar to you guys. This is move, a movie that's essentially saying there are too many lawyers in the world. <laughs> and, uh, if you are one of those lawyers, get out of the game because you should go read that fantasy book with your kid. Um, the picture in which might save your life. And um, stay an extra hour at your dad's birthday party. That's the takeaway from <laughs> yes. this movie. Yes, a dark takeaway, but uh, but <laughs> I think um, you know one that 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 rings true to 
to all of us. I had a great time talking about it with you guys. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Pro Se Movie Club. As always, we'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, for editing today's show, as well as our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Music for the show comes from Ashley Shadow. We will be back next week with another installment of the Movie Club, where we'll be discussing Loving, Jeff Nichols' 2016 drama about the Supreme Court case Loving vs. Virginia, which invalidated state laws prohibiting interracial marriage. It's a great movie about a very, very interesting case. Join us next week to hear all about it.